Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Welcome to this episode of Flavour Talks with me and Trevor. We are joined today by John Wright. John, can you tell us a bit about how you got into the industry? Uh, what, what fascinated you about flavours in the first place or like how did it come about? Well, it was accidental and I think that probably applies to a lot of people. I started working for a company in the northwest of England in Southport which was at that time part of Duckworth. Now, all these companies have been taken over and, you know, morphed into bigger and bigger entities. But I didn't join it because they made flavours. They did all sorts of stuff. They did fruit compounds and everything. And so it was interesting. It was a good company. And the thing that got to me, though, was that I started in QA and... After a few weeks, he kind of got that. And so then I moved on. And then after a few months, I kind of got that. So you ended up feeling that particularly the juice side of it um, was, was fine. It was interesting, but there was a limit to how much you could learn about it. Probably the most challenging part was emulsions. And again, once you got the hang of that, you got the hang of emulsions as far as you could. There wasn't something else to learn about it. So the part that was intriguing to me was the flavour side, which was not something that I'd gone into it for at all. But at that stage, and we're talking the late 60s, you were in a period of tremendous advance in analytical knowledge, and it was just so interesting. And it was kind of obvious that however much you learned about it, you were never going to know, not just half of it, you were never going to know anything really approaching half of what there was to know on any one subject. So I decided that this company wasn't going to be big enough for me and I needed somewhere to train because I was never going to train in that environment. There wasn't the background, there weren't the experienced flavorists or anything. And it is basically, as I think most of us would acknowledge, it's a bit of an apprenticeship job, isn't it, essentially? So you need somebody to train with. And so I joined what was then the sort of fledgling Bushbulk Allen Company in London, which was very interesting in terms of the exact opposite. It was big. It had the experienced flavorists. You could learn a lot very quickly. But it was also in the throes of a merger where you had three UK companies thrown together that were really totally different. And if you ever think of company politics, that was the, you know, the, the center, the bullseye for company politics at the time. So that wasn't settling down. And I joined uh, another company in London, which was called PFW, which was part of uh, basically an American company, which had started off as a breakaway from IFF. So that's later merged 
um, into Tastemaker and is now part of Giverdan. So there was a history to that. But that company was super interesting because it was privately owned. One of the two cousins that owned it was a flavorist. So if he just took a fancy to doing research on something, he did it. He didn't have to explain it to anybody. No shareholders, no quarterly meetings, no nothing. You just did it. That was great because you you just learned so much in such a short period of time. And the guy that I worked for in London was Michael Seidman, who was a real character. And he was one of the best original flavorists I've ever come across. He was a superb character. Very nice guy. Uh, very difficult to deal with because he was a contrarian. So if you went to him and said, this flavor's great, he'd say, it's rubbish, throw it away, start again. <laughs> and if you went to him and said, I'm stuck, I can't do this flavor, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, it's just hopeless. He'd say, it's brilliant, send it out. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can guess very quickly how you learned to go into his office with your flavor. <laughs> it wasn't hard to do. <laughs> he, he, he was a nice guy, and, and the flavorist in the US, who was the sort of 50% owner of it, was also very interesting, because when you had a very successful flavor, he'd take it and modify it, mm -hmm. and that had the potential to be annoying, because you didn't like your super flavor, which had already sold very well, messing around with. It was even more annoying when he improved it. And without fail, with my flavors, he made them better, which was kind of, whoops, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Annoying, yeah. It's annoying. But no, it was good. And it was, it was an interesting environment. And it was one where um, I guess I, I, I learned an awful lot over those years. It was good. They were then taken over by Hercules, which changed the environment completely. And Hercules had a sales force that they thought could sell flavors. And so it rapidly became a place to leave very quickly. So I went <laughs> to work in Canada uh, with BBA again. Now BBA kind of settled down. And mm -hmm. Canada was a really interesting environment because it had been a backwater probably for quite a while. It sort of suffered from being so small compared with the US. Yeah. And so if you developed original flavors in Canada, you had, if you like, a wind behind your back in terms of selling them because people were very open to Canadian developed flavors. So that really was a, a very pleasant and very successful period for me. And it was a good spot because you weren't constrained by anything. It was too small a location for people to interfere to sort of say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? So you kind um, of got the opportunity to like, uh, I guess, uh, again, choose your own adventure, like decide how you wanted to do stuff a bit more. Well, I did, I did that. And the other thing was you get a, an inkling into everything. So you're yeah. involved in everything. So it's like the benefits of working in a small mm. company where you're, you know, you're understanding and getting involved in the sales side, you're getting involved in production and everything, but you don't have the disadvantage because it was still a big company and you still had the resources. Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was a very interesting time. And I did quite a bit of work then with the US branch, which was at that stage in Norwood in New Jersey. 
And then I moved back to the UK and started sort of moving up through management, more by default than from yeah. some great plan. But that was interesting. And I managed to keep making flavors all the way yeah. through because I enjoyed that. And I've done that right throughout my career. So even though, you know, I've been responsible for all sorts of stuff over the years, marketing, R&D, I've still made my own flavors and people have never, you know, sort of tried to look over my shoulder and stop me doing that. So that's I think I, I find that that's one of the biggest opportunities, I guess, once you become a flavorist is that people see your, oh, well, if you're successful, uh, people see your work as valuable, so give you a uh, certain length of rope, um, so you have more opportunity to to I guess play around a bit, um, because they know that in the past your um, application or you, what you've what you've decided to create has come off. So it means that you have chance to like kind of get back in the lab, even though that's not your sole uh, I guess uh, commercial purpose, um, which is which is a cool opportunity if that's allowed, I guess. I wanted to quickly take you back um, actually to, to the beginning of your story a bit. Um, when you moved from BBA the first time, um, how or, or when you moved from QA rather, when you moved from QA and decided that you wanted to progress in the, the flavorous route um, and you decided that actually where you were, I, I guess it was at Duckworth where you were in QA, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, how, and this is a relevant question to a few young flavorists who've, who've kind of get in touch with me and other people, and they go like, this sounds like the job for me. This sounds like the coolest thing ever. How do I actually do it? How do I get into it? And I was just wondering, like, how you approached BBA from Duckworth in order to then get a trial or to start out? You know, like, did what did you have to prove or how did you... How did that come about? Well, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And as you can imagine, in my situation, it's one I get asked now fairly mm. frequently. And the answer is different now to what it was then. I think you have to remember that back in the early 70s, which is the period we're talking about in these moves, you had an industry that was expanding so fast that they couldn't keep up with themselves. Mm. And it wasn't an industry that was driven by sales. It was an industry that was driven by technology. Mm -hmm. So you made a new raspberry flavor, a new strawberry flavor, a new orange. Maybe your own originality, maybe you just lucked on a superb raw material that nobody mm -hmm. else had. But then that would almost sell itself. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm exaggerating for sure, but you know what I'm saying. So you had these companies there where the sales were going up fairly rapidly year on year and they couldn't deal with the level of projects that they were getting in. So it was at that time, I think, luckily for me, fairly easy to get into those positions. Mm. And so it was very much a market where once you got some experience, then you were in a very good spot to move on to the next job. A lot of people moved around a lot then, which wasn't so good, but it was that sort of time. 
I think the difficulty now is that because the job is better known, it wasn't known then if you said you were a flavorist, you know, people would look at you, what, you know, <laughs> okay, <laughs> do you clip toenails or what? <laughs> I mean, I just, yeah. No idea. Now people know, or to some extent know, and it's seen as a desirable job. So you get the question then, you know, how do I get into it? Well, the key thing I think is to get some foot into the door. Mm -hmm. When you look at companies, if they have an opening, their first option is to recruit people internally. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to be in the company and you've expressed an interest and you're working in something, let's say applications or whatever, it doesn't matter, but something with some connection to the, the, the job, then you're going to be given a preferential shot at it, I would suggest, in nine companies out of ten. So your best option is really to just get a foot in the door. I think the idea that you're going to write some superb you know, CV and suddenly be offered this magic job is, is, is not so likely. Yeah. The key thing to understand in those circumstances is then two things, really, to put yourself in the mind of the person that's going to interview you. So it's, you know, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of flavorists. It's very hard to pick potential mm. flavorists, particularly. You've got a bit of a chance when they've got a track record. But when you're talking about trainees, it's really quite hard. And you're looking for any clues you can pick up. So having a creative side to your personality in whatever way you, it, it's expressed, might be art, might be all sorts of things, music, you play an instrument, whatever. There's, there's no particular answer to it. But having something in that sense is obviously a helpful in, in the context of that conversation. The other thing I think as a recruit, you have to think about is that it is very much a you know mentorship situation mm -hmm. so it's helpful if you're known by the people who could potentially be your mentor because those conversations are for sure going to happen and when somebody's asked what do you think about so and so they're working yeah. in applications do you think they'd be a good recruit then you know, you've got some idea whether the personalities are going to clash or whether there's, you know, going to be some uh, useful situation to build on there. So I know this sounds like a very long and convoluted answer, but it's the best way to get into it. Yes. It may not be the most direct way of getting into it, but it, it definitely works. I think it's a very good point that you, you bring up, John, because I've, I've actually been contacted quite quite a bit on LinkedIn by by several people because I actually do a PhD in flavor chemistry. I don't work as a flavorist. And many people have asked me, um, suggesting what what I um, what they should do. Should they study food science? Um, they already have, for example, an engineering degree. And as you say, I think a lot of it would be quite good joining as perhaps something else and waiting for the right opportunity. And you could possibly see what a flavorist is like before you even go for it. Rather than studying a food degree and then going down 
down that route. Did you do a food degree, uh, John? No, I didn't. I'm just an ordinary chemist, I'm afraid. Oh, that's <laughs> an ordinary chemist. I mean... They, the, 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 I mean, the thing is, it, I'm sure everybody's going to agree with this, that you study something and then you literally use a small fraction of it. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean that you stop science. It means that your science goes off down a different path. Yeah. And it's extremely interesting. So the scientific part of making flavours I find fascinating. But, you know, how much of that would you learn on a course? Uh, not so much, probably. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's more something that you develop into. And I've still got this tie-in with MIT. And it has mm. nothing to do with flavours. But it's fascinating in terms of how that sort of input can be applied to so many other things because we've all got this idea that our own little sphere of work is unique and nothing else is comparable mm -hmm. and you know nobody else can comment on us we're, we're sort of immune to that well we're not immune we're all horribly similar and the same sort of issues come up right across the board so i find that you know from a scientific point of view another very interesting input into it yeah, I think it's really interesting that you also mentioned, and this is what a lot of people mention as well, is like getting your foot in the door um, and then deciding what role you're going to have um, it really changes. It, it, it completely changes what type of flavorist you are or become like as in a creative role, but it really does make a difference how close you are to that creative center or the creative people who will become your mentors. If, if what, if what you want is to become a creative flavorist. Uh, for instance, if you were to join uh, a flavor house as uh, an analytic, analytic chemist, uh, then you potentially don't have as much interaction in the creative part of it mm -hmm. as you would if you were in applications, because then you're talking about how these things are released and how they're dosed and all of that kind of stuff. And you, your, your job is about describing the products. Um, whereas analytically, I think, I guess in a big company, you have less um, crossover. But I, I guess it, it all depends where you are and uh, how they work. Well, it's something you could... I mean, there are people from the analytical side that have crossed over. And I think one of the key things there is location, isn't it? Because if you've got the analytical side on the same physical location, mm -hmm. then you can build a, a, a link because you can invite people to get involved in the analysis, to smell things out, to yeah. make it up and rerun it and all this good stuff. So it's up to you as to whether you deal with it as a remote job or as an interaction job. Where it can, I think that can be quite difficult is where the analytical locations 50 miles away, then there's a big disincentive for people to, you know, trudge over just to smell something out on the GC. I think that's right. When you say, because some analytical chemists can be more involved in flavors than others. For example, with me, I worked in a chocolate company and I was uh, doing GCMS off of the products there. But I wasn't allowed to know any of the sensory side before because I could be biased to search for certain things. I had to just do broad profiling. So I think it could depend on the type of uh, analytical chemist you are. Well, yeah, I mean, I've always been very biased and proud of my biases. So when, I, yeah. when I've been doing anything analytical, I've been seriously biased. Yeah. 
I feel like everyone is biased, yeah. The thing that makes me laugh, though, is where I've been doing, you know, sort of fairly long-term research projects, particularly over the last few years, I think I can say, honestly, without exception, that my original biases have been wrong. All right, so okay. My idea of what the solution to the problem was that I started out with, I, I, I think I've probably got about zero success rate. So there you go. Biases may be satisfying, but they don't necessarily work. Uh, that there is someone here in the audience um, who brings your book wherever they go, always has it with them. So it raises Are a they very question. Short and they need to sit on it. <laughs> yeah, it, they've got a wobbly table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but it's. I think it's. A, it's a. It brings up a good point. Now, um, you've written a book that we all think is insane, outstanding. It's really good. It's well used. Everyone has like um, what's it? Dog-eared all of the pages and have uh, posted notes all in it and out of it. That was obviously, I, I guess you see that as a successful thing, but how successful has it been fiscally to write a book for such a small industry? Well, that was a big challenge because I started off with Ali Red back, back in the day with the old guy and <laughs> was sort of arm twisted behind my back to write the book, basically, and he could do that. Um, and you don't, you don't realise when you commit to doing something like that what a total pain it is because it's, it's, it's tough. And that's when you're just writing it. And so it was fine. And I got, a, I think, a decent commission from Alured for the first and second editions. But as you say, it was a small circulation book. It's inevitably going to be a small circulation book because you know it's not going to be something that your typical Amazon reader is going to going to buy so then Alured decided to go out of hardcover and I wasn't convinced with that I you know keep up with the times in some ways when I want to and in some ways I can be a bit of a Luddite but I like the idea of a physical book Mm -hmm. yeah. in the lab where you're going to refer to it you're going to say oh what's this I'll just look it up um, so I just had the idea that they were premature with that the reason why was obviously that they had to take the gamble of printing however many thousands of copies mm -hmm. and you know that was then stuck in storage somewhere and so it went on um, but I, I went through the whole thing of self-publishing at that stage and ended up with Blurb because Blurb let you control everything. Yeah. If you went with Amazon, which would seem to be the easy option, then Amazon controlled most things and took quite a bit of the profit out of it. Whereas Blurb really was self-publishing, literally. You were paying them to print it and that was it. Um, it was it, it wasn't easy. They had a a piece of software called Book Bookwright, and Bookwright had a good name, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But 
when you looked it up on the internet, everybody's comments were that the learning curve was beyond steep and that they weren't helpful, mm. you know, problems that you would inevitably encounter. And they weren't wrong. The learning curve was, was you know, just straight up, basically. And I certainly had problems, but they were helpful. And then once you've got the hang of it, it's a lot easier. So it's like all of these things that it's complicated, but once you've got the trick, it's you're good. Yeah. Um, so it worked very well for me and they've worked very well for me. And, you know, it's not something you're going to make a load of money out of for sure, because as you say, you know, the sales are just limited to people in our industry and a few people in academia. But yeah. at least then you're getting a decent... Uh, you're not making the loss on each book, so you're making a yeah. profit on each book, which which yeah. makes it work. And the great thing about it is that you do it, and then you know it's a monstrous job to do it. But once you do it, you can just sit back and that's it. <laughs> well, then you get loads of us like uh, pestering you for podcasts and lectures and stuff the rest for the rest of your days. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> so it, it, I think it's such an interesting thing because, do you know, when we talk about, uh, and I've spoken to people about this before, and someone once told me that, well, I didn't come up with this myself, but um, my, my first mentor, Danny Kite, I don't know if you know him or you've worked with him or you've heard of it, but he's a past president of the BSF. Um, but he once told me, um, you don't make flavors for flavorists. You make flavors for as wide a population as possible. So yeah. you make sure that it's um, not, it doesn't contain any allergens, um, that it's safe to use, that it's safe to transport, that it's easy to make in the factory, yada, yada, all of those different things. And you make it for as wide a population as possible because that's your market, you know? So you, you, you may be um, making products that you enjoy but equally you might be making products that you don't enjoy you know you might be you might really dislike butter flavors but actually that's the project that came through your door so that's yeah. what you'd have to do yeah. um and it, it's it's different to the book because the book you've gone into knowing that the market that you're selling into is small so then you have to think about how you make it of a profitable enterprise but well this raises the other cool question of like what horrible flavors, in your opinion, have you made that ended up selling really well? Well, the most horrible flavor I made was uh, basically a sort of mock turtle soup flavor. And I was sent an extract to match, a natural extract, I guess. And it just smelled like you know, cow manure, basically. Oh. So it wasn't appetizing. <laughs> that may have been a lack of familiarity with it. It might be an acquired taste, but to me, it just smelled like cow manure. There was no question about it. And you were glad it was on a blotter and you hadn't trodden in it. <laughs> so, and then you had those, to put it in your mouth. <laughs> in, the, in those days, there was... Uh, I, I got into this habit of taking blotters to the stairwell. This was in Walthamstow because it was an odor-free or relatively odor-free little spot, whereas your lab was not, you know, because you'd been making the thing up. 
And you can imagine me smelling this Carmenere blotter and people walking past me on the stairwell. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting to behold the looks, you know. So it had an entertaining side to it and the thing sold successfully. So there you go. It's, so <laughs> it's, it's really funny how many people have stories that are about kind of this uh, animalic uh, manure kind of thing because it's the things that you remember. I remember one of the one of the first projects I was ever allowed to do uh, was actually to create a, like a fecal aroma. So like the smell of a, a farmyard, countryside and stuff. And it was almost one of the same things. Um, but um, I was I was working at at, um, uh, at the wrong dilution. And um, little did I know that someone from operations had actually called in plumbers to fix something that they had previously fixed. Um, because there must have obviously been a leak or something because the drains must have been blocked because the smell in the car park was awful. Um, and they, so the plumbers came over and followed the scent upstairs into my lab. And there I was with like uh, one of those respirators on. Oh, really? Was going, oh, that, that is, there's your plumbing problem. It's Trevor in the lab. <laughs> so funny. Well, to think... To think that, well, all these aromas, as you say, like outside cow manure aromas, they will exist in the air at probably quite a low concentration. But you're working <laughs> with probably, I don't know, something that would be diluted a lot more in a product. So, I mean, it's probably astonishing how stinky it must actually be. Exactly. You can imagine the showers when you get home. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> are you ready for your lunch when you're like, you know, when it comes peace break, are you ready to just switch off and start eating? I mean, is it, oh, is no, it I'm, all, I'm always ready for my lunch. You're no, always ready for your lunch. <laughs> I think that's another prerequisite for being a flavorist. You, I think you need to really find food interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love cooking and I love developing recipes and all that good stuff. So I think that, as you say, goes with it, doesn't it? And yeah. It's part of the temperament, really. What would you find? Uh, is your favorite kind of cuisine or like um or, or place to visit because of the food well there's no single answer to that i know that sounds like a cop-out answer i don't but think so if I, if I was forced down a, a single answer it would be france so i spend a lot of time in france i even spent a lot of time in france last year despite all the you know saga Mm -hmm. and if you can find a bad meal good luck i don't know how you've done it it's a bit of, it's a bit of a challenge um so they have a long history of interesting cuisine uh contradictory ideas about cooking novel approaches to things so it's a that's a very very interesting uh area to dabble in you can say the same about Italy, but I would particularly pick France in that respect. I've spent a lot of time in India and I love Indian food. Mm -hmm. And that also is very, very varied and very, very interesting. And when I first went there, which was a long time ago, it was quite challenging to, you know, understand what was going on because they didn't have cookbooks. It was all passed mm -hmm. down in families. And the only way you would learn was by standing in the kitchen and watching somebody doing something. And the sort of cookbooks that you had at the time were just coffee table things. There weren't things that were actually really like, 
you know, Indian food in India. They were, you know, stuff just for show. And the other place, sort of, I picked this probably on a parallel with India is China, because China is also extremely interesting, very, very different cuisine in different regions. Again, a very old, you've got two very old cultures there that have developed all this stuff over centuries. Mm. There's an awful lot of subtleties to it. Um, China, probably a little bit better served with cookbooks. Mm. Um, not so much the ones you'd think of in the West, but there, there is stuff that is quite good. So I find that very interesting. I just go through moods, really. I kind of think, oh, I just fancy this and or I fancy that. And then you overdo it and you get fed up with it and you go on to something completely different. So that's, that's my sort of uh, catch-all answer I'm covering in quite a bit there. Well, I think but, it's a good point, though, because it, it's like saying, please, like, what's your favourite song? It's kind of impossible. It depends what mood you're in. So yeah, no, I think it's, it's a good answer. Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly what I think. And there's odd chefs over the years that I've been involved with who've been particularly intriguing. Raymond Blanc at one level, who was very, 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 very nice guy, very, very interesting to work with. But you, exactly what you imagine a top French chef to be. And then if other, at the other end of the scale, people just doing their own thing with no concern to whether it was right or wrong or whether it fitted into any particular cuisine or not, just throwing it all up in the air and, and doing what they wanted. And, you know, you've got a few of those guys uh, in the UK and also in New York. So that's, that's, that's another interesting way of looking at it, because I don't see why there should be any particular rules to any of this stuff, really. You just no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that the, obviously food, food is culture and um, food kind of gives people like a, a sense of identity. So uh, when, when you this is our food kind of thing, you know, like when we're Italian, this is our food, this is how we eat, these are our rules, and um, this is how things are made, but that's a, that's a cultural thing. Now, one of the things that I, I read a book the other day that this is kind of uh, true of, partly, but um, that because we are so ingrained or harsh, partially partial to our own food based on this um, nature-nurture kind of debate, um, and with the, the onset of globalization, you can have where you are now, Indian food, probably pretty good, Chinese food, probably pretty good, but different to where it, what it would be like in those countries. But does it change the, the idea of eating food where it's meant for? You know what I mean? So like the ingredients that you need come from the place that you live. You know, and I guess yeah. in China, you get that. In India, you get that in each of the different regions. Clearly, you're right in the sense that the regionality of the food is to some extent derived from what's there yeah. and what ingredients you're going to build it around. But at the other extreme of it, there was a Chinese restaurant near to uh, Mondelez where we would go at lunchtimes pretty frequently and their menu was a typical American Chinese menu. 
uh, exactly what you would expect. And it was okay. But if you expressed an interest, they had a Chinese menu where then, of course, you're faced with not knowing what anything is on the menu. And it's yeah, just yeah. hot luck. So two of us would routinely go and they had this, you know, three for the price of two thing. So we're just basically sticking three pins in the menu and seeing what came up. Mm -hmm. And it was it, it was pretty close to what you get in China. Yeah. So there, there are, you know, ways round. Clearly, you can't get all the same ingredients exactly understood. But there are ways of approximating to it quite, quite effectively. Um, and that restaurant certainly did it. And it's it's certainly possible to do. You know, if you see the sort of Chinese side of it, there's there's a number of recipe books that will help you get the best approach that's closest to the original ingredients, some of which you're clearly not going to get. Yeah. And and do you find the same corollary or uh, correlation in flavors? So flavors by region or people's tastes and have you have you noticed that and i know that's spoken about a lot about um people in um eastern europe like have a different taste to people in western europe or people in um australia have a different taste to those in africa um have you seen that as a as a market difference having worked in so many different places yeah you see big differences i think you see differences really on two levels. One of them is that I think where you've got food for small children, where the brains are still developing, mm. they will develop preferences and dislikes, but particularly preferences which stay with them throughout their lives and which they will then unconsciously translate into stuff that they eat as adults, but they won't be able to put words to it. So an example of that would be a culture where nutmeg would be added to baby food. Mm, and yeah. the, not nutmeg itself necessarily, but some of the components of nutmeg then become drivers of liking of all sorts of unrelated things later in life. So that's a subtlety, but it's definitely there. Um, the other side to it, obviously, is familiarity. If you take something like mangoes, um, mangoes in India, you know, people are brought up on them and expect them to taste like mangoes, whereas certainly in the US, and particularly a few decades ago, they were a bit too challenging because the sort of skin note was too strong. It was, it was very mm. harsh. And so they had to be toned down a bit by making them a little bit melony, making them a little bit peachy, whatever. But they were not as aggressively uh, skin toned as the original fruit would be. Now that gradually changes. So if you look at a typical mango flavor in the US now, it's still not something that would sell in India, but it's getting in that direction. So you see these gradual changes as people just kind of get familiarized with things and, and get used to them. So, but yeah, you're right. And I mean, I, one of the key things that you learn over the years is the difference in preferences, whether it's something as 
horribly obvious is strawberry flavors mm -hmm. because yeah. strawberry flavor that sells in Spain is not going to sell in the US. Yeah. Um, but it runs through almost everything. It's just, you know, the way people are uh, familiar with things. So would you say with matching a, a type of flavour, you'd need to first of all recognise what kind of variety and kind of source and supply that they use? For example, you're saying Indian mangoes, but there's probably a lot of different producers and growers in different countries. So then how do you kind of know which kind of variety of mango or flavour to concentrate on to make a flavour based on? Well, mangoes are extra difficult because the thing that I'm talking about is the sort of skin note, which could be osamine, it could have been mercy when we were allowed to use mercy. Um, but you move a few hundred miles and then it's terpinaline or pinene or limonene or, you know, carrying. There's so many changes, major changes to the profile of mangoes depending on the geography and the variety that's grown so it's a, it's a very very difficult one to be specific with and where I'm sort of saying you know there's a big difference between a let's say an American strawberry and a Spanish strawberry or a strawberry in France again but the differences between mangoes are, are much larger they're going to be really quite tremendous and if you're trying to sell in the Philippines an Indian-style mango, good luck with that. It's not going to work. Do you find, I think this is actually just <laughs> such a weird thing. This book that I was reading is all about biodiversity. So that's why these questions keep popping into my head. Um, but it's weird to think of exactly this, of, of how people's preferences are actually driving uh, the flavors that you produce or the flavors that we create. Um, but to think about the, the vast array of different banana flavors that exist in the market but then to think of the actual fresh fruit market and know that it's massively dominated by one clone that's crazy yeah, yeah. but not everywhere yeah exactly no, but, but uh, in terms of that global fresh fruit market kind of sense yeah but no, no, yeah i get what you see right yeah but if you go into, you know, a little corner store in India, it's oh. not going to be that, is it? <laughs> no, so which, which type of banana? Yeah, exactly. No, it's very interesting. <laughs> We'd probably be a specific <laughs> banana flavorist in India rather than like a, a, a fruit or, you know, sweet uh, flavor. that many <laughs> a types. A banana, banana blender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean that's that specific box? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, should we go on to like... One of the like some other questions of like what what was your you know when you think back about like um what was a really cool project you know sometimes you have and this could be anything like maybe it's because of the the sheer size or it could be about um the use of like super interesting technology or you had to uh, design a specific methodology or whatever do you have something that like springs to mind immediately of like what was and you may have lots but what were some things that were like wow that was cool well, there's, there's a lot, as, as you can imagine, over the years, because the whole reason why we're flavorous is because the thing's fun. Yeah. So if you only get one project in that category every year, you're doing something wrong, folks, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a lot. But there's one project that I remember particularly fondly, because as a kid, we had a patch of raspberries growing outside and they weren't 
modern raspberries, they were old variety. Goodness knows what the name of the old variety was, but they'd been there forever. And so they tasted totally different to anything that you could buy in a, in a store and very much better. And so, of course, something like that sticks in your mind. So then when I got to do my first sort of big research project on raspberries, so a project then that's going to go on for months or whatever, then you're looking at analyses, which I always found very interesting because you've always got this combination of different techniques and mm. stuff you can learn from one and stuff that's not going to be useful from another one and all this stuff. So, you, you know, you're trying to do detective work within the analyses. But on top of that, I was also trying to think, well, OK, this is fine, but even though we'd done a great job picking some really good raspberries to analyze, which you'd obviously do, the perfect raspberries of today were not, in my mind, the perfect raspberries. So I was trying to, you know, move back mentally to something that was a lot better. And I found that just fascinating because that takes you well out of the box. You know, the answers are not going to be any sort of clever combination of stuff you can find from science or anything. You're not going to, you know, find a clue to that. It's all just going to come into your head. So I, I just loved working on that project. Another one that I loved working on, you've set me off now, so I hope you... Yeah, no, this is perfect. That was the idea. <laughs> if you've ever been to a market in France, you get these little stalls that are selling just farm produce, and sometimes you get people that will sell you wild strawberries. So you're only going to get a box that this is this big. And it's only going to be half full. And these things are little tiny, tiny things. But the smell of them is just amazing. It's sort of strawberries just on steroids, isn't it? So same thing there, but with the big advantage that you've actually got them there. So you can play around with them. And it's not, it's a different character to some extent, for sure. I understand that. But it's also a, an emphasis on things that you find particularly attractive in regular strawberries. So I, that was a project. And that was not to make the wild strawberry, to make a regular strawberry. But I stole stuff from the ideas from the wild strawberries. So that was great. So there's a there's an endless list of these things, but that's what makes the job so much fun that you, you know, you end up with something and you sort of think, oh, okay, that's kind of good. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then it comes out the other side, you get to smell it or taste it and think, wow, that fully paints the picture. Uh, what yeah. would you say was would be, so uh, I think this is for a wide audience. So um, character impact compound of wild strawberry. Well, the most obvious answer to that, and the thing that just sort of goes straight up your nose when you put it over the little box of wild strawberries, is the methylthiobutyrate. Because it's not just stronger than it would be in a strawberry, a regular strawberry. It's a lot, lot, lot stronger. You can actually smell well, that compound. Oh, oh it's really? just yeah, yeah. Un unbelievable. Yeah. So that's a sort of short answer to it, but it doesn't do the whole trick, obviously, mm -hmm. because there's floral characters to the wild strawberries, which are immensely attractive. And that's quite complicated. 
And even that sulfur smell is more complicated because, you know, you've got to look just beyond the one compound to try and get to it. But that's a start to it. And obviously it gets you a, a good, good long way. <laughs> I always I always think key, uh, key order active compounds are quite interesting. I wonder if I ever went on mastermind, could that actually be a category? Uh, something very specific they just fire and i could tell them what it was in the food i don't know but it's really subjective though isn't it like well like character impact compounds there's a list of lots for everything that's true <laughs> yeah i mean that sort of stuff is very interesting and it's also stuff that you have to process in your own head because I like looking at analyses like aroma extract dilution analyses mm -hmm. and the sort of implications that they have for the relative importance of the things that they found. Mm -hmm. But God help you if you take it literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's the same as even, even odor activity value. So like some sense of significance. We're all looking for some estimate of, of significant, significant importance to a whole. And sometimes it's impossible to, to determine one single thing and how important it is to the whole. But once you've got that whole, it really sparkles. Like it's impossible to see the individual parts because you balanced everything so yeah. well that it's just bang. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's in, entirely true. Like an accord kind of way that it would describe. Is that a term that's used in flavor, accord? No, that has a terrible perfumery sound about it. If you use a word like that, you're assumed to. Have I would not get the job then if I went no, to. No, you wouldn't it. just not get the job. You'd be assumed to have gone over to the dark side. <laughs> You'd be given uh, a pair of pantaloons to wear home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and some pointy shoes. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I feel like we probably will have some uh, perfumers listening to this. Um, Please don't take offense, uh, only in jest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're prepared for the um, outrage. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I've got to say, obviously I'm joking, but there was a period at IFF where we had one IFF. And, and so flavors and fragrances were working together and that was so interesting yeah. it's such a great area and it's essentially the same job but approach from a completely different set of perspectives and it's you learn so much from each other and mm -hmm. I think that that was just such a great period in in that company and it's difficult because there's barriers in most flavor fragrance companies to people doing that. Mm. Um, but there's so much to be gained when you can do it. Yeah, to really maximize that. And, you know, I, I feel like that's hopefully a good segue to, to think about uh, or to see what you have to have to uh, say about the, the way that you've engaged with or um, uh, heard about and spoken to the BSF recently and how it's different to perhaps 10 years ago. Um, not in a good or bad necessarily, but what I've personally found is that we've become more of this uh, idea of a team of rebels. So lots of people from lots of different um, locations, lots of different companies, and we, we see the same kind of problems, but from different perspectives. And it means that we get to learn from one another. And obviously for me, I see that as one of the biggest benefits. 
um, as you said about learning from perfumers, they see things from a different perspective and therefore you can, you can learn a lot from them because they are, I guess you're both smelling the same thing, but they, they're seeing something different. And I wonder if, like, what, what, what do you find to be positive and or things that could be improved with the, the British Society of Flavorists? Well, the first qualification is that I'm not so qualified to answer that because I'm living in New Jersey. And so my interactions have been a little bit limited, obviously. And the same is true of a lot of stuff that I would normally have been involved in in the US and you end up doing some things on Zoom. But, you know, when you've been doing a lot of stuff on Zoom during a day, you're not looking to do something extra afterwards. <laughs> Once you've had enough of it, you've, you've had enough of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I, I qualify that, that then I'm not really the best person to ask that question. But my sense is very much in the positive direction that you're setting out. I think the usefulness of the society is not as a guild, mm-hmm. which to some extent uh, there's a danger that societies can become. And it's not as a trade union, which can have its uses and a job recruitment site, which can also have its uses. But the real benefit to a society of any nature is that it is basically a disruptive team effort. Now, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. I think if you've got people that are disruptive against each other, then that's obviously not very helpful. But if they're trying to look at the industry, if they're trying to look at the roles that they play um, and not constrained by the past, then I think that's entirely good. And that's very much a parallel with what I do with MIT because there, the innovation lab originally you could imagine that it was all based on software Mm -hmm. and a lot of it was so companies like google you know were, were a big part of it but the barriers to innovation are all people and they're all just people being stuck in doing things the old way because they're being defensive because they fear that if something changes it might affect them in a negative way. And so the whole uh, rationale then is to find ways around uh, change and to enact disruptive change without wrecking things. And Mm -hmm. I see an element of that in what the BSF is, is trying to do. And I think it's wholly, wholly beneficial. Yeah, which is cool. Well, thank you. I think, uh, Greater praise couldn't come from a better person, but um, I think it's this, that's a great idea. Like it's a, it's about this thing of like don't be constrained by the past for posterity's sake. You know, sometimes uh, the past exists for a reason because trial and error got us to that stage, but that's not necessarily a reason to stick to it. One of the things that I was thinking about in terms of new innovation and how it's it's really really driving companies in different directions and. Um, speeding up growth and lots of different things into different areas is that when you think about um, 
uh, validating new ways of doing things. So maybe it's green chemistry or maybe it's actually just like uh, normal organic chemistry. Once you've validated a new way to do something, a new way to isolate a material, and it's validated as being faster, um, better than a previous method, it's no longer a shortcut. It's now the way. You would be foolish to do it the old way because it's the long way around. So it's this idea about the disruption is not necessarily for disruption's sake, but it's actually to, to validate that what you've changed is making something better. Well, yes, absolutely. But the, in a typical company where you get into trouble with that is that people would have something of themselves invested in the old process. So the trick really is to find ways of walking around that problem. You know, you can walk through it for sure, but it's often easier to walk around it. Is there anything that you would like to talk about? It's <laughs> a good thing because it, like, we're, we're free, but it means that really now you get to choose your own adventure. So you could pose questions to us. Pose questions to Aiden. That's really fun for me. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Trevor doesn't know much about me, so he wants to actually learn something. You know? We've got a worried looking Aiden here. Uh, yeah. no, I, I, I think that the, the thing that uh, is a potential question was one that I have a lot of trouble with. So I'm putting myself in a difficult position here. One of the things that sort of almost assumed is that things were better in the old days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'm ever asked in a situation like this, what, how would you compare being a flavorist in the 70s to now or whatever, you know, the sort of yeah. The assumption is there that you're going to say, oh, well, in those days we could mm -hmm. do such and such and now we can't and so on and so on and so on, that it would be a litany of complaints. And I think that's so wrong because when you look at the way the industry's changed, not just the industry, but the whole world's changed. But the industry has changed along with it. A lot of the changes have been very positive and change is definitely for the better. Companies have become much flatter. They've become much more inclusive. If you look at the role of women in the 70s in the flavor industry mm -hmm. and the role of women today, it's just completely different and very much in a, in a good direction. If you look at the sort of projects that we worked on in the 70s, it was almost, you know, you're doing a research project, you might have six months, you might have a year. It was like watching grass grow on occasion. So it could be very interesting. There's no way that it was the way it is today. Now you could turn that on its head and say, okay, today I've only got you know, so many hours to work on this project and then it's got to go out. So I understand there's two sides to it, but it is quite a bit more fun being pushed to work to things on a, on a more rapid basis than that. And what I particularly like doing, I do it now, I've done it for a number of years, is working on a number of things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're just flicking back and forwards between one thing and another. And if you were to watch it from outside, it looks terrible. It looks like you can't concentrate on what you're doing. 
but really what you're doing is making a step forward avoiding getting stale by working on something else mm -hmm. you know then going back so you make very much quicker progress now with stuff than I would have ever done at the start of my career so I honestly think most of the changes are, are changes for the better if I can you, you were asking me about the British Society of Flavorists mm. British Society of Flavorists when I originally joined kind of was a trade union basically yep. and um, a lot of people saw it as that nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. but it was neglecting the sort of role that you're talking about now because you you're you're in a time of change and that time of change isn't suddenly going to stop for you or anybody it's going to carry on and how it goes i don't know how good are any of us at predicting it are you going to have industry that splits up into a creative function and because there's not that many new raw materials are you going to have companies that just concentrate on compounding I don't know, I'm not suggesting that will happen, but stuff is going to happen. And the industry in 20 years time is not going to be what you're looking at today. That's the one certainty to it. And I think the sort of approach that you're taking is very helpful because it guides that and it takes part in it rather than just seeing it, you know, from the outside. And hopefully... Do you know, the thing for me is this is not necessarily about the BSF or anything, but like some things that I think about myself in, in the role that I have been, I guess, afforded by being a flavorist is that we need to think sometimes about the kind of um, the idea that I <laughs> the name I gave it is consequential determinism. So about these two different uh, philosophical um, schools of thought. Where did you come exactly. Well, it was it was early in the morning, but I decided that. Just <laughs> well, you were awake. I was awake, yeah, but it it uh, it really fits. No, I love into it. I'm, I'm just kidding you. It sounds really? so good. It sounds really serious. Exactly, because well, it it, it it really fit. <laughs> well, it fit into my into my my very short rap that I was preparing. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so it fit into that. But no, the idea behind it, or the idea that I thought about it, is that. When we decide to do something, so we create a new flavor, um, what we're hoping from the outset is that this thing becomes bigger than everything else. You know, it becomes as big as Pepsi or as big as Coca-Cola and it drives a market and maybe it creates a new market. But to think about the, the consequences of what that is in the way that you build the flavor. So think about uh, the raw materials that you use um, are those things able to be sought in fast quantities? Yeah. Uh, are you able to, to like, you don't want to be the kind of part of the problem of decimating a, the, the local crop of vanilla or of anything, you know? So you, you kind of want to be thinking two steps ahead based yeah. on what you hope to happen. No, no, that's 100% true. And that's obviously very true where you're working with big companies, which is what I've done over a lot of the last decade or so. So there, if you are not in a situation where you're comfortable with alternative sources of supply and, you know, a comfortable surplus of the raw material, you just simply don't use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but also like things, things about like building in extenders and all of that kind of stuff, it all, it all changes how like kind of the, the creation rubric and the things that you think about um, because you, you're trying to look further into the future than 
potentially just tomorrow. One of the other things that you mentioned, which I find really fascinating, and hopefully you don't take, well, I don't, you won't, you won't take offense to this, but I, I oh, would I'm consider. Right. I'm right. I'll work on it. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. I'll test you. <laughs> I'll test you. Okay. So as I consider you a, a multidisciplinary agent of discovery, yeah, mad for short. Yeah. Mad, yeah. I'll go with that. <laughs> okay. But, it, but maybe a synonym for that is a, a polymath. Yeah. Do you find that that kind of idea of having many hats and being uh, jack of all trades, um, master of none, but oftentimes better than just one, um, do you find that that kind of adaptability is something that will be required and sought after in the future, in the, the near future, in the flavoring industry? You know, like people who are able to pick up different stuff and this idea of adaptability. Yeah, I'm going to, I've, had this question on other occasions and I can end up uh, winding people up with it because I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a flavorist is to just go into a very narrow little box. So if you become just entirely a whatever flavorist, there's a long list of them, then I think you do yourself a disservice. So I think a lot of us feel that you get so much cross-fertilization of ideas from working in different fields of flavors that it's an almost 100% plus to do that. As I mentioned earlier, I see the same thing with fragrances. So I think the ability to have, and I mean, I, I'm not a perfumer in a million years, but the ability to play around in that space is a tremendous plus for a flavorist. And the same thing applies in reverse to perfumers. So I think that is entirely true. I think the other thing where I tremendously appreciate it is this whole thing of, with MIT, being outside the flavor industry altogether. And then you're faced with, you don't know what you're gonna be faced with, but you're gonna face with something. And we've been doing stuff with NASA, with the Pentagon, with the World Health Organization, as you can imagine over the last couple of years. And it's all different worlds and it's all totally different challenges. And it's just like your mind's wiped clean really but in a very good way because you're facing a sort of whole different set of questions and a whole different set of challenges. And there's no simple answer to any of these things. It's all, you know, you're just trying to do your best and work in the right direction with it. But it's so helpful. And I find it's just a tremendously reinvigorating thing to be taken out of one world and dropped in another for a few days. And then you look back at the old world with a fresh set of eyes and a very yep. different perspective. Um, and you can see that in all sorts of other ways, uh, just in a, in, a, in a sense that we'll often come up with flavors working, you know, in, in, a, in a restaurant, working with some chef that for some reason you know you've you've got a project with it's just a totally different way of looking at stuff and it's just so refreshing to do that so i yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more 
Of course, I may be, as you say, fitting into the MAD acronym there, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully the, the acronym does needs to stand for Multidisciplinary Agent of Discovery, which is really cool. <laughs> because <laughs> stuff, Trevor, I honestly don't know. What's that? I don't know how you come up with all these. Things. I think you say you get up early in the morning. I think you just like write poems or some kind of things. You don't. I do. Ask, write... yeah. Do you? <laughs> what? I do write poems. Yeah. All right. But maybe that's for a different forum. Yeah. All okay. right. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Come on. So Have you wrote one for the what I, what, I, what I need now is just to get me out of, you know, the sort of rut. If you can read me a poem, that would be great. That's <laughs> you, isn't it? Okay, so this was a particular bad day. Yeah. <laughs> this, this poem was written on a particular bad day. And this I wasn't in, intending this to be my platform. Yeah, so guys... Please, I'm Stop not trying to take credit for this. Excuses. Okay, I'm going to read it. <laughs> Resist the fact you're a basket lugging the effluent of past experience. Be the potential to carry the beneficial waste fraction. Enlightenment relies on previous discourse. You are the consequence of prospects past. I implore you, release the demon. Follow through. Make that fart a poo. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's all no. about just do it you know just well, do it it's my mock turtle thing isn't it i love it it's great, yeah. <laughs> it's great. so here's me treading around you know calming you and all that sort of stuff and i'm basically <laughs> making shit flavor really. <laughs> <laughs> ah, exactly yeah very cool um <laughs> I think we're going to have to shuffle this around because this is going to become a little bit more serious, probably. Um, <laughs> um, do you have any internal limit or a barrier, like for whatever reason, on how many components you use in a formulation? Yeah. Um, it's one of those subjects that's come a lot uh, from different angles at different times over the years. When I've been in a management position, then you're under a tremendous amount of financial pressure to keep stock in reasonable sort of turnover rates. So you want to minimize your number of different raw materials. It has a dramatic effect on profit. So in that sense, I saw from the company's point of view a sensible limit to how many ingredients you could put in a flavor. But the other side to it, I don't know if you remember, he passed away a few years ago, but do you remember Dick Packham at all? Mm. Does the name ring a bell? Well, he was a British flavorist that I worked with for a number of years. And he would just sort of miraculously find a way of making a flavor with the minimum number of components. He wasn't doing it as an intent. Mm. It was just the way his mind worked. And so he'd come up with a great flavor with maybe 12 components, maybe 15 components. And you'd sort of not be able to see the cracks. You couldn't see yeah. the joints. You couldn't see that this was really a bit too simplistic. Mm. And at the other extreme, I've seen people over the years that have used keys 
mm -hmm. to make yeah. flavors and ended up with a very, very large number of ingredients. And then without exception, that flavor could be improved by throwing half of them away and not putting them in at all. Yeah. So somewhere there's clearly, you know, probably Dick Packham's limit was about as simple as you could make the things. And he was excellent at doing that. But then there is an upper limit to how many raw materials are actually beneficial in a flavor. Mm. Beyond that, you're just basically adding gray. You're not really yeah. adding anything helpful. And I don't know where that number lies. I think it varies with the flavor. It may be 15, it may be 30, it may be 50. And I but guess depending on the application too. It yeah. depends on the application. It depends on, you know, if it's a heated flavor, it's going to be more yeah. complicated. And um, so I don't know, but I think there is a, an ideal limit and a, a nice sort of spot there. And I do try and hit that. Um, yep. So from my own creative point of view, I will always try and minimize the number of ingredients. But then quite often I'm making flavors for a company that has a strong view on the subject. Mm -hmm. So yep. then I will just go with whatever their, you know, their requirements are. So it reminds me of um, that famous quote. So that's Antoine de Saint-Exupéry quote. Um, Perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. And I feel like that fits really with flavors. And that's it's really true. And I mean, you, you see it in a just day-to-day -day sense, because you know perfectly well when you're working on something, if you get into Friday afternoon and you're thinking, oh, well, I'll try this and I'll try that. I've got half a dozen things to try. Yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, it's Saturday tomorrow. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not. <clears throat> you end up with that formulation. Look at it on Monday morning. It looks kind of different. And mm. you sort of, mm, why did I put that in? I don't know. Seemed like a good yeah. idea at the time. And sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you get in the next day and you're like, I don't even know who did this because this is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What What was I thinking? That's craziness. But couldn't the time that you've left that also impact that as well? And um, maybe, but that would be like a really cop-out kind of way oh, of saying right. that I just did something dumb. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's doing dumb things. And I think our only excuse is that you're working with one ingredient too long and you get a bit deadened to it. So you just don't see it at the time. Um, but when you come back to it, for sure you do. It's the same as what you were saying before about um, like smelling in a different environment. It's, it's amazing how like, obviously you, I say, obviously. So our brains with this idea of your brain being this engine of, um, um uh mad mad this mad engine <laughs> no, so like trying to look for the, the similarities in your surroundings but you, we're trying to find out all of the changes in our in our environment so when people first go into a flavor lab they're like how can you ever create something in here because it smells so strong mm. but you kind of it kind of settles out to being that ground level and then you can smell things that are different in the environment as they change sure but but it is completely different when you when you t change the setting and then taste or smell something in a completely different environment. It really gives you a, a different sense of how that's going to be appreciated. You know, and I think that's a really important thing to do. Like as you used to uh, go out to the stairwell to to smell something, 
Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important tool to, for people to concentrate on. Well, the, the stairwell always worked. What I always did as well was take a blotter home. So I'd open the car window a little bit, then mm. send it up again, so it'd jam the blotter in the window and just drive home, sort of smelling it remotely. And people would give you strange looks. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think it's a really good point. Do you know those, those little, um, what's it, incense burners? It's not like an incense burner with the stick. But the ones where you could just pour like a small amount of yeah. of oh, uh, yeah. fragrance oil or something, and then yeah. you burn it off. In a way, it kind of gives you a similar sense to what a GC would, you know. So everything comes off in different stages, and if you're smelling a flavor burning off slowly, um, you you get the top note. The same as a fragrance, how a fragrance kind of like um, airs off on your skin. Yeah. And it, it can, sometimes it does, especially when you're trying to match something, or if you're just thinking of something to to blend those things together. I feel like it really, really can help, but everyone's got their own kind of sneaky little tricks or ways that make it that make it work for them. Well, that's another question, actually. But what's the what's the worst thing you've ever accidentally got rubbed on your steering wheel? Oh, uh, the I don't know if you back in the old days you remember this. This is a long time ago. Sotalone to me mm -hmm. is an yeah. unbelievably awful thing to get rid of. Uh -huh. But even worse than sotalone, there was a period where ketobutyric acid was used. And ketobutyric acid reacts with water to form sotalone. Oh, so really? you've got it on steroids because you've got ketobutyric acid on your hand. You try and wash it off. It just gets oh, no. more and more smelly. Yeah. And it, it was, it, that, that is far and away the worst because I love... Indian food and I love fenugreek but up mm. to a point <laughs> there is this breaking point where you think oh my goodness this is terrible <laughs> there yeah. was one compounder in BBA many years ago who actually achieved the impossible in terms of odor he got sotalone on his hands and actually got thrown off a London transport bus because he smelt too bad and that's something to be proud of. I don't think yeah. yeah. got to <laughs> that's that impressive recognition. <laughs> There's something seriously wrong with you. You need to leave this transport. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've all got weird stories about those things. Like one of my worst is I, I opened a tub of um, indole and uh, someone before me had put in put the it was in like a and like double bagged. So mm. it was double bagged. Um, to obviously like stop it like emanating all over the place but the bag was in upside down so when i saw the bag i i pulled it out but they hadn't sealed the bag they'd obviously just like turned it around and then put it in upside down which to me was so dumb obviously i pulled the bag out and then there was indoor all over the place and then i had to try and clean it up don't clean it up with anything that's going to solubilize indoor because then you're just rubbing it all over the place so i was just sneering. Yeah indoor all, all over the place and yeah you can imagine it it smelt like um a pretty horrible public toilet no i mean yeah. at, a, at a low level it's a great raw material but in the house yeah it's, it's certainly not so what do you think about um you know like odor or like um 
concentration and perceptual level. You know how everything has a different uh, use graph or like a release mm-hmm. graph, you know, what, and they're all completely different, you know, so like every single um, material that we use, maybe you can say this is the threshold value and this is the, the maximum value above which yeah. you won't be able to experience anymore. But the way to get there is very complicated and it's yeah. never linear. So that's yeah. an interesting thing that no one really is um, trying to tackle in literature, to my knowledge. Well, that's one of the things that's so wrong with trying to, um, I don't know if over-regulate's the right word, but it's over sort of scientificized, which is mm-hmm. a made-up word. Um, <laughs> this whole thing of relating the threshold level where you've got problems anyway, because you can look at threshold levels all over the place for the same thing and get different answers. But then assuming that you can draw a relationship between that and, you know, its usefulness in a a real life context is ridiculous. Because I I agree with you 100%. If you take something like Damascenone, it so gradually creeps up on your perception as the concentration increases. And, you know, you've got a lot of chemicals that are exactly the reverse of that. So what you're trying to do, I think, I think it's wrong in two senses. It's wrong because the strength perception uh, change is not, as you say, it's not linear. So that's wrong. But the other thing then that is a big error with it is the interaction between different molecules. So the fact that you've got one thing there that is going to interact in some way that we don't really yet understand with the receptor influences the way you perceive the next chemical. One of the things where I saw this very early on in my career was dihydroactinidiolide, which if you looked at it just coldly, in terms of concentration, in terms of threshold level, and so on and so forth, it probably wasn't going to be effective. But then when you actually used it in, let's say, a berry flavor, but there's a lot of flavors where it's effective, it had an effect way beyond anything that you would have predicted from tasting it or smelling it on its own. And that was clearly interactions in the sense of receptors. And I see that as a very, very interesting part of the way forward. I mean, we don't really understand the reason why we smell things the way we do, but it's clearly multiple aspects of receptors, not just one. And I never bought into the whole vibration thing. You know, I always just thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's more. I can't make this work. Um, I can't try it out and come up with a success with it at all. So it's so intriguing just seeing how all these chemicals interact. And we understand it sort of not scientifically. We understand it intuitively, don't we, really? We know that from our experience, it's a good idea to use something with something else. Um, Mm. But I think at some stage, we will understand it scientifically an awful lot better. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's lots of stuff happening in literature at the moment. Also, just to correct what I'd said before, um, I think I maybe um, misspoke slightly. So uh, when I was talking about um, how um, 
we we don't necessarily know the release curve, you know. And I was saying that it's it's obviously not linear. It's not um, regressively exponential. Um, any of those things. What I said that there isn't any literature about it. But what I should have said was I haven't read much literature about it. According to Trevor's so, knowledge. <laughs> according <laughs> according to my limited time on the planet, I do not know of anything yet but i will continue to look mm. well i think it's one of those areas if you look at academic papers they've got better because mm. if you looked a decade or so back they would just be you know here's my blinkers this is what i'm doing now the blinkers have widened out a bit and they're trying to tie it in a bit more to the stuff that it's about um, so hopefully the blinkers will drop off at some point. Let's let's wait for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the nature of academia, isn't it? That you, you know, if you put yourself in the position of being a professor, you're going to get your tenure because of some great theory. And then, of course, you spend years trying to force everything on the planet to fit into this mm. theory, whether it wants to go in or not. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, and everyone has that, those kind of like... Um, I'm going to get into um, a lot of trouble depending on who's listening in. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to... St- all of us have to stand back and just say, like, we didn't mean any offence by it. Like, also, we've thrown all the perfumers under the bus, too. Yeah. The bus, the bus that that other... That the application technologist was allowed to get off of. <laughs> he would have got off the bus, smelling like Endol, and seen all the perfumers just underneath it. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> That's what the podcast is about. Um, I have a question that I have asked someone else before, and I would like to ask you as well. Um, do you think, and this is a dumb question. Well, it's not dumb. I like it. It's fun. I try to think every now and then. Yeah, it does work quite well. <laughs> do you think that... Oh, sorry, you, you're going on. Yeah. Do you think that sniffer dogs will need to go to rehab now that electronic noses are getting so good at detecting drugs at airports? <laughs> um, Is that a question? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I love animals. I love dogs. So I would hate the dogs to be redundant. Um, clearly, the electronics have got better, but I don't know how quickly they can adapt to change. Mm. So I think if, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a joke question in a sense, but also as a sort of semi-serious answer, all this stuff changes so quick that it takes you quite a while to, you know, get something electronic to work with something new. Whereas a dog is different. A dog's going to pick it up pretty quick. But they, they obviously have had to be, in, be trained as well, you know. So in, in terms of like machine learning or animal learning, um, they have a training data set. You know? So they have the whatever they have in, in evidence, in the evidence locker <laughs> to train the dogs on. <laughs> and um, that is, um, as they would call it in machine learning, uh, supervised learning yeah <laughs> so so in a sense you could have supervised learning of an electronic nose i don't know <laughs> and we can see where it goes from that 
but it's all about these wacky ideas that maybe actually have an application somewhere. No, no, but I mean, if you just follow that through, then you've got a new chemical, which mm -hmm. then the dog isn't going to recognize. Yeah. How long is it going to train you, take you to train the dog to recognize it? I suspect not very long. How long is it going to take you to get your electronic nose to get its mm -hmm. head around it? I suspect a lot longer. So, you know, if clearly there's room for both isn't there so i think it's one of these things where you may be able to use electronics in part but i would not want to get rid of the hounds either so i think somewhere you've got a, a compromise especially because otherwise you wouldn't want them to go like straight cold turkey because then the price of of the rehab would may may nullify the gains you get from the electronic nose well, yeah, but I don't understand why the dogs have got to go into rehab. That's where I'm having problems because the only sniffing things. So you're assuming that they're getting addicted through sniffing them. I don't see that the rehab's essential. I think these dogs could become, you know, guide dogs for the blind or whatever with minimal extra training. I think they'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, no, fair point. Fair point. I'm pleased I asked the question. It's not it's not a fair point, it's a ridiculous point, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair fair point to a ridiculous question. Um, <laughs> we had a question earlier on that I wanted to ask you. Do you well, but I want to ask you in a in a slightly more this podcast probably ending soon way. Um, do do you see any similarities between flavor creation and music? And have you ever tried to explore that at all? Now, before yeah. you answer, wait, before you answer, what is the difference between a piano and a fish? <laughs> you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is oh that is that's awful. a dad joke. I don't even know if you're a dad forever, but that's a dad joke. I would never have got to that. And I'm <laughs> sort of kind of proud that I would never have got to that. <laughs> <laughs> you only asked that question, brought that up so you could bring that joke back into it. But yeah. Correct. <laughs> No, I love the joke. What the hell was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> have you, have you, have you ever explored the parallels between the creation of music and flavor? Yeah, sorry. I, I, the thing that I love music, and I love all music pretty much. It's, I think, a challenge to find music that I wouldn't be interested in or wouldn't like to listen to. So we all made it through the snowstorm to war on drugs at the Madison Square Garden uh, in New York, which was, they were brilliant. New York streets were not because it was all snow and sludge and horrible. Um, so that's one extreme of the sort of fairly heavy end of music that I like. But I love Mozart, I love classical music. And the thing about Mozart particularly was that he had it all in his head. And so mm. he was reputed, of course, to have this sort of memory. So he'd hear something and he'd be able to write it down hours afterwards. But that wasn't the point. The point was that when he composed and he composed tons of stuff, it was all in his head. 
and he just wrote it down. There wasn't a thinking process around it. And I see an enormous parallel to that with flavorists because if we're forced to talk about flavors, we talk about it in a logical way. We say, well, we're making, you know, this bit of the flavor and then we're adding these green notes and all this mm -hmm. stuff. That's not what we do. You don't start off with a few bits and add the rest of it. You start off with the whole thing in your head and make a mess and then make it right. So, <laughs> but it's true though, isn't it? Mm. I think if we haven't got time to do it in a scientific way, we have to be like Mozart in the sense of the way that we work. And I don't think we give it a second thought that if there's a few notes out of place, there always will be, but mm. we know how to correct them. And so I think there's a tremendous parallel. And if you look at composers that uh, famous and successful with the benefit of you know looking at them from hindsight in history then most of them have been able to form this synthesis of all the different sounds in the orchestra and they may have had to refine it as we'd refine the flavors but it's something that's coming out as a piece it's not something that they're working out stepwise as they go along there may be a few of them did it like that, but not very many. I think all the ones that you think of that wrote the great uh, works of art did it in a piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you know, if you think about this, uh, there's like a, um, a temporal kind of experience to music in the fact that it starts out and it's, it's really drawn out, you know, so all of the different components of the, of the piece are really separated, you know, so maybe you have, Lots of things that overlap, but it's it's a um, a time from beginning to end. Whereas flavors are not always as um, dispersed. You, know, you don't when you when you eat something, besides some applications of some things like maybe chewing gum and things like that. Um, the the time to onset and the time to end is is often quite quick in comparison. Do you do you think that? that makes us try and um, anticipate how all of those things fit together one on top of the other in a different way to, to how um, music is composed. People are not necessarily looking at the, at the whole thing. They maybe are doing it more like a, a story or a book where, with uh, an introduction, a, a middle and an and outro kind of thing. Um, whereas yeah. we don't often do it, it exactly like that. No, you, you're right. So in a sense, we don't have as difficult a job to do because we're doing something that's uh, seen in a sort of fixed place and that's it. I, I, you have to acknowledge then that a great composer is somewhat in a higher plane than a great flavorist. And I think that's the truth. Mm. Um, I think the difference isn't as enormous as you're saying because... If you look at the structure of a lot of great music, it has an underlying structure and a theme that's built on and stuff that recurs. Um, so it isn't quite as bad as... Or different, you know, yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, but for sure, it's a, it's a more difficult job. No, no argument about that. You, you sound yeah. like you must play an instrument or you know 
quite a bit about music, I'm guessing, or? Well, I love music. I play the guitar, um, <laughs> but not so well now because I'm getting a bit arthritic -y. Um, so yeah, no, I love music. I've always been interested in it. I've always had a lot of fun with it. Um, and you know, it's again, it's like flavors, isn't it? However much you know about it, you don't know much about it. And <laughs> so it's always interesting and it's always interesting to see something that's challenging, you know, that somebody's going about something in a completely different way. And one of the nice things about music now is that a lot of the rules have got thrown out and people don't feel they have to you know write something that fits into a particular style mm. or whatever they just do what they fancy and that i think is brilliant well, that's like, so good when I, when I apply like what i like in, in my sort of sense of flavor understanding and so i play the church organ and i think of that as actually like making a flavor so you've got all the different individual stops and you know what every single one of them sounds like but sometimes when you're playing in the middle of a church service, you don't entirely know what that stop is going to sound like on top of everything. I mean, God help you that if you, if you ever pull out the uh, 16 foot uh, trumpet stop, because that one is absolutely that is like a sulfur compound coming from nowhere and it would just blind everyone. But in that sense that you have these stops and you can pull them out and push one in and mess about with the volume by closing and opening a swell box, it is completely like making a flavor. But you don't remember. I never write down what stops I use, so I can never make it again. But it is like that. Well, you say a perfume organ is, I think, probably where that kind of phrase comes from. But I don't think they call a flavor organ, do they? They do. No, but I'm, I'm full of admiration, though, because I've had a go at that. And it's seriously more difficult than playing the piano. There's no argument about it. Yeah. It is, it is really difficult. <laughs> Oh, good, good for you if you can play a church organ. Would you be better if you had more hands? Well, I use my feet as well, so it's fine. Yeah. Okay. But would not, you be better the, if not, you had more hands? Yeah, uh, well, there are, I play an organ with three manuals, three keyboards. So, yeah, it would be quite useful, actually. <laughs> well, maybe the next, uh, do you know, the next variant of COVID, actually, all of the last ones were bad mutations. You know, they, they either maybe made it slightly better, but it was still a bad thing. I was thinking that maybe through some stroke of luck, um, the next mutation was something beneficial that people actually wanted to get. Well, we've got a name for it, haven't we? Medusa. We, we could always sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. the snakes playing at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew this. This is going to be some mind-bending carnage of a conversation that always just descended to mayhem. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, I, the, the, the organ thing, I'm seriously impressed with that because my father-in-law played the, the church organ. Oh, wow. So I had a few goes on it. And my goodness, it's, it's, it is, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, it's, it's still like, the, I would say it's one of the most stressful things, even though I've done it for a few years. It's still something I don't think I can get used to. But I like being out of my comfort zone. And that's probably something that proves a lot about me. Mm. I think it's... It makes you sweat. It makes you think about it. I think that's why I need that kind of challenge. And I think that's why I should be a flavorist. <laughs> Adaptability. <laughs> <out> there. <laughs> also, that's so good. I think, well, fortunately, this is recorded and hopefully people will listen to it thinking, who is that Scottish character? He sounds adaptable and like he should work for us. You're going to be inundated with calls. 
Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it is key. It's a good comment because the fact that you enjoy challenges and the fact that you, you know, have fun out of something that's just outside what you can do with any level of comfort, I think is a, is a real good indication because that's kind of what the job is really, isn't yeah. it? If we're honest about it, most flavors that we make don't sell and yeah. it's a tough job. So if you wanted to be in your comfort zone, it's not the place to be. So the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Which is great. Yeah. I, and I don't think I can say that's changed very much over the years because the boundaries of what you can know have expanded quicker than my knowledge of stuff. So <laughs> instead of thinking, oh, I'm getting all this now, I'm nearly getting there, I'm thinking, oh, okay, very much. Yeah. <laughs> Brand new stuff not to know. Yeah, very cool. Well, um, Thank you so much for your time. Honestly, we really, really love the opportunity to talk to you again. I think it's so good that we have this platform that people actually um, kind of respond to the request. You know, even though we have to like fangirl you and badger you until you end up talking to us and with all of the other people that, that have given us their time for a podcast. I think it's really, really good for uh, young flavorists coming into the industry, but it's also really interesting for people who know you, people who don't know you, who have maybe just read your book or have heard of you. Um, these kind of things is um, built on this idea that um, serious and fun aren't dichotomous, you know? So it's not a dichotomy. Then it's not, they're not opposites of one another. Um, things can be serious and fun. And hopefully that's what we, um, striving to to create well i agree with you 100 percent. i very much appreciate the chance to talk with you and to be on this podcast and i'm at the point in my career now where i particularly appreciate the serious and fun thing so i have no company politics i have no you know who's in charge of what issues or anything like that I just enjoy what I'm doing. And that's just brilliant. And I think we're all so lucky to have found ourselves in such a fun job. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Or soon to be found in such a fun job. Well, thank you for your time. Um, really, really cool. I can't wait to listen to this again uh, yeah. once we've recorded it. Thanks very much. Thanks again. No worries. Thank you very Thanks. much, John. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. Bye. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavours with BSF Flavour Talks. I hope that you've seen there is much more behind flavours. It is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour signs, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review. I'm Aidan 